welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potzagire, your host, an artist and educator. Suzanne Joyal had great advice about working with students with disabilities, which really applies to working with all children. I loved hearing about her path to teaching through motherhood and how she advocated for the arts in schools. It was also inspiring to hear about her art practice and how she overcomes artist block. Suzanne has exhibited her fine art at Artworks Downtown, Youth in Arts, O'Hanlon Center for the Arts, Albany Center, the Mill Valley Library, and Thornton Tomasetti. A visual artist with extensive teaching experience, Suzanne holds a degree in art history from Wellesley College and has worked as a fine art gallery curator and an appraiser of fine prints for Butterfield and Butterfield. Suzanne is the founder of Purple Crayon Art Studio, a popular San Francisco art studio for children and families. Having created and directed Purple Crayon for over a decade, Suzanne sold the business in 2007. She also founded Give a Jump Start that used art as a tool for microfinance with women and children in Zambia. Suzanne provides professional development workshops for educators in arts integration techniques and is the creator of the Walker Rezaian Creative Hearts Program, an early childhood replicable visual arts curriculum. At Youth in Arts, Suzanne focuses on the model programs, including the Arts Bank. Suzanne earned a Master of Arts in Arts Education with a focus on special populations from Moore College of Art and Design in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The only program of its kind in the country, this program was founded by Lynn Horashak, a pioneer in the field of arts education for special populations. For the students of Moore, and arts educators at Youth in Arts, special populations means anyone who does not thrive in the linear neurotypical classroom. This could mean students experiencing disabilities, newcomers and English language learners, students experiencing the effect of trauma, or anyone with an IEP, an individual education plan. Let's hear from Suzanne. I am talking today with Suzanne Joyle, and I'm so excited to hear from you. You have so much wonderful experience, and I feel like you're just going to have a wealth of advice for everyone. But I always like to start with your background, your journey. Could you share how you got to where you are? And I like to think of it as how did you become an artist and how did you become a teacher? Sure. Yeah, Yeah. I'd love to. I think that I was always an artist. I remember sitting in class when I was even a small child and I daydreamed a lot. And I was always daydreaming, like thinking of ways, solutions to questions and materials that I had. And so I was basically always designing in my head when I was supposed to be in school and thinking about, could I show this through dance or photography or a drawing or a painting? And there was always some way for me to share what was going on in my head. And then I I studied art history in college back in Boston and also took a lot of studio courses. I guess I never really believed that I would ever be able to live as an artist. So I never kind of followed the full-on studio path. I wish someone had advised me that that I could have done that, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. Moved out to California from New England and started working in the arts, in appraising art, and then for some nonprofits. And all along the way, I was creating my own art on my own time and also exploring some entrepreneurial efforts I had in mind. Like I just always thought I would do some type of a business with my art background. But my first attempt at that was a teddy bear business. And I hired Hmong refugees to do the sewing for me. And that kind of connected my my need to, to just help people and help people 
just express themselves. And so that kind of was my first step into how my artistry could be employed, you know, with other people in mind. And then eventually I started a business called Purple Crayon, which was an art studio for children starting at age two. And that's where all the pieces started to fall into place for what I saw as huge gaps in how children are educated now, based on my own experience growing up in rural Maine and having so many opportunities to create, even without money, you know, just my my grandmother taught first grade and we were always making things with paper and wood. And, you know, she always made us kind of find our own solutions out of boredom, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. So that's kind of what I wanted to give children is this idea Mm -hmm. that you have it in your own ability to solve your own problems. And so that's how Purple Crayon came to be. I had two children. Uh, When they started school, I became also a very outspoken advocate for improving the arts education opportunities in the school. And that led to my present job with youth and arts where I've been since 2008. And that mm-hmm. career has has really been the way that I've been able to mesh my artistry with my work in a much more meaningful way. But in, in looking at all these questions you had, I found myself thinking, what's the thread that holds that that runs through my life's choices. Mm -hmm. And I decided it is this idea of giving a voice to the unheard, the unseen, the overlooked. Mm -hmm. And because I've worked in Zambia, it was an executive director of a group that was working in Zambia at one point. And we were working to start micro lending programs and improve the, the lives of these women and the children they were raising in Zambia, really remote part. And I realized, okay, I'm using my art here because these are people who don't have a formal education, but they create all day, Mm -hmm. every day. And so we designed all kinds of great programs using artistry as a way to express ourselves Mm -hmm. and also to learn. And so that's what I was trying to get at with students as well. You have a voice through the arts that you may not have in other areas of your life. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear more, I guess, about each of those sort of like chapters in your life, like more about your work in Zambia, more about Purple Crayon and, you know, all of the things that you've done. Maybe we can start with the work in Zambia. Do you feel like that gave you insights that you brought forward to the rest of the work you did later on? Yes. So in several ways, but Mm. for my art making part, I had stopped making art when I was a mother, you know, spending all of my time raising my sons and caring for Mm. every, my family. And when I started to go to Zambia, I realized that I could share their voice through my own art making. So Mm -hmm. I would go, I went eight times and these were women with really no formal education. So we were trying to design these programs that they could run on their own without having a formal education. And one of my favorite projects ever was we needed to really get people to understand what what it was like to run a micro lending program. And these were the people who did have some education who are going to be running the program. And I took 16 pieces of paper and wrote out each step of the process at the bottom of each piece of paper. And then I handed out these pieces of paper and I said, okay, now illustrate what goes Mm -hmm. into this step. Who has to be in the room? Where does it happen? All of the details. And so they did that and they're like, okay, great. And then I said, okay, now let's make it into a book. What Mm -hmm. order do all these things have to go in? And The book still exists, still in the office in Zambia, but that was so meaningful to me because one, it made it fun. Two, we weren't just lecturing. And I know from my own experience that when people just lecture at me, I go into daydreaming mode. So (laughs) So that kind of was the first step where I realized, okay, this is a tool. This is a great tool Mm -hmm. because when people use their artistry, they, they open up in a way they don't even know they're doing. Yeah, Yeah. It's like things that are hard to articulate too into words like it kind of can come out creatively 
right? So when I came back after these trips, I was inspired to do art making. And as I was photographing tons when I was there also. And so I had some photography exhibitions at, you know, the local art stores and things and started making really huge paintings out of Mm -hmm. old, just gorgeous handmade paper. And then I would collage on top of them and then build up these really rich layers of color. And Mm -hmm. the piece that first really got me going was I realized this connection between these women in Zambia and my own grandmother, who Mm -hmm. was French Canadian, four foot 11, Mm -hmm. raising four children, generally on her own. She was a Rosie the Riveter at Shipyard in New Hampshire. At Portsmouth Shipyard. She would every actually all of the women who were able to work would leave their children at the boarding house and the older women would watch all of the children while the women went off to build ships for World War II. But mm-hmm. I saw this connection between them. There was the la- there was a lack of education, there was a language barrier, there was doing what you can with nothing, making something from nothing. Mm-hmm. And I designed this painting. I found a really old French and English dictionary. And so I made this collage where I used my this French dictionary because my grandmother spoke mainly French and designed a scene of from using a drawing by one of the African women as the the main feature in the the piece and it just got this just really sparked a whole series of paintings for me that really got me excited to to work and back to the idea of some nothing something from nothing is i was using a book that was meant for the recycling bin and mm-hmm. someone gave me some old soft pastels and so i thought well what can i do with these and what i ended up doing was i would have a jar of acrylic medium and a paintbrush in one hand, and then a color in the other. And I would draw with the soft pastel and then paint it in with the acrylic medium. Mm -hmm. Dries really quickly and would build up these beautiful layers of color because it's all translucent in the end. And so it just, the whole process sparked kind of a creative journey that I feel like I'm still on now. Yeah, that sounds like a beautiful process. Now I'm like, I need to break out those materials. I want to try that. (laughs) Have you done that? Have you used sort of that process with students? No. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I should. But I guess that while while that was happening, um, I was inspired by students as well because Mm -hmm. I was working with students with disabilities I had just started working with students with disabilities and I saw this incredible freedom to experience, to explore materials. Mm-hmm. And so I think that also drove my sense of experimentation and, and kind of validated this process. I wanted this journey I wanted to go on. Yeah. Well, I just say that because I feel like soft pastels, like you're talking about like the chalk pastels, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Those I give them to my six-year-old and she loves them. But one of the things she loves is that she can make a pile of dust. Yeah. Giant that just like gets everywhere. We're like, this is an outside activity. (laughs) I think that's why I don't do it with children or young students. (laughs) And also it's really not good for their little lungs anyway. So, but I have done it where you can put some sugar water sugar in the water and then Mm. they can paint with that and that makes it stick too but Mm. I agree the giant pile of dust is really too much (laughs) it's it's a lot yeah Yeah. but I was I guess I was thinking like maybe the acrylic medium helps eliminate that but it's also acrylic like I kind of avoid that with the little tiny ones right or you know tell them like this isn't coming out of anything (laughs) right but you could just water down Elmer's glue Ooh. Hmm. <laughs> All right. I, Anybody who's listening and tries this, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> I love it. Later on, much later, I took that same process, but then I started using casein paint. I think that's how you say it, because mm-hmm. I had heard some something about that. And so I started to build up all of these layers with paper. 
and then mm-hmm. paint casein on top and mm-hmm. it would dry and crack and peel up. And that was even cooler to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. All of the layers and like the cracking and what that can represent too. Yeah. Just this like breaking and healing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so you were abroad and then you came back and you were working, (laughs) running Purple Crayon. And I guess, could you talk more about that experience? And I feel like it'd be interesting to hear both about like the teaching methods and, and what went on there, but also sort of the business side of things. So I had an amazing business partner, Andrea. And I remember I went to Andrea and I had this idea in mind. I had already started a business plan and I said, Hey, Andrea, I just found out I'm pregnant. Do you want to start a business with me? She (laughs) said, yes. Perfect timing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So purple crayon was really a labor of love and it was our opportunity to design exactly what we wanted to design. I I didn't have much experience with pedagogies or teaching. I just knew what I felt was right. So we started with these courses with children as young as 18 months old. And then Andrea's father was an oil painter, a very successful painter. So he ran evening classes for adults. And those classes continued even after Purple Crayon closed. Marvin was still running his adult classes. Mm -hmm. But at Purple Crayon, I wanted to get back to this this idea that I had learned from my grandmother, which was, again, something from nothing. You always Mm -hmm. have your hands. You always have your brains. And you can can basically create your way out of boredom. Mm -hmm. And it was a wonderful experience. And we had a great ride until the, the, the dot-com crash of what was it? 2006 or whatever it was. We started Purple Crayon in 97 Mm -hmm. and it ran for 11 years. Mm -hmm. And so through that process, I was still taking courses in arts education and learning different pedagogies and refining you know, how I was asking our teaching artists to teach and how I was teaching myself. We had a a core of maybe six to eight teaching artists at any time. And so I was doing the training and writing, designing a lot of the curriculum as well for everyone. And so they were weekly classes drop in. And I think the most important lesson that I learned from watching other parents is we had to teach parents how to encourage their children to make art and be creative without touching it themselves. And so we would teach them how to talk about the art and what to look for and how to, you know, be non-judgmental and ask open-ended questions. And eventually I learned about visual thinking strategies, VTS, and that was just such an eye opener for us to give that that gift to parents, you know, not the whole process, but this just this idea of be concrete about your feedback, be Mm -hmm. clear. And that was wonderful. And I think that was the the biggest gift I probably got out of Purple Crayon was this. I still have people who will come up to me now who's, you know, children who were in the program are now married with their own children, but somehow they still recognize me. I love that. Yeah. So that was, that was good. And we did, we did all kinds of courses for, for a very long time. We held on for as long as we could after the, the dot-com crash. And eventually we just had to close and my own children were starting school across the bridge. So I just, Mm -hmm. I needed to be a little bit closer to them too. Yeah. It's, interesting too to hear just like the ebbs and flows I feel like I'm always talking about this that you know life isn't this sort of straight line that you know your your priorities keep changing and your where you need to be and what you need to be doing might keep changing yeah but I love that that advice about being like really clear and concrete not touching the artwork yeah (laughs) yeah we used to, I, I, I've, I, I'm sure I offended a few parents because I would pretty much say, sit on your hands and use your words. 
And we would get them to leave their kids as early as possible because students, the children were so much more engaged when their parents weren't hovering above them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, and that we also, we also were able to, you know, we did a lot of pro bono events for different organizations to help them raise money for their fundraisers, like the aquarium and the zoo and local museums and things like that. And that was really fun to just get out in the community like that too. Yeah, that's beautiful. And then you, from there, you moved to youth in Mm -hmm. arts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know that's been sort of a long, like you've been there for a while now and you've served many different roles there. How has that kind of evolved and it seems like it's also evolved alongside your continuing education, like yes. keeping, you know, continuing to take more and more classes about art ed. Yes, it's 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 an amazing organization. And I think that what has probably been the most important part is I get to work with really bright, interesting, creative people. And that's just exciting. Like, Whenever there is a problem, we have really great discussions and problem-solving sessions about how how to move forward in a way that's better for everyone. And I just don't think I would have found that anywhere else. I started out that, well, they asked me to come on because I was fighting so hard for the arts in my son's school and coming into the classroom and doing the volunteer art projects, which I feel like we've all done. <laughs> and have you done that? Or- I haven't yet. Cause my daughter was, she's only first grade and she's at one of the schools I was teaching at. Oh, good. So I was like already there as an art teacher. <laughs> oh, so th- this is the thing that I don't think a lot of people realize is that California's arts education is almost non-existent in a lot of places. Yeah. So that's what I mean by fighting for the arts in my child's schools is there was no art teacher. There is now. But when my children were in school, there was no art teacher. They Mm -hmm. maybe got eight or 10 weeks of an art class and maybe the same for dance. Music was the teacher playing the recorder in the classroom and that's it. (laughs) So which sounds so ridiculous, especially in a state where the arts are such a huge, huge part of like our economy and our livelihood. (laughs) Right. So there's, there's a report, there's data that says that 42% of the arts-based jobs in California are held by people from Ohio. Wow. (laughs) Not from California because Mm -hmm. there is no, there's very little arts education in our schools. So anyway, Mm -hmm. I was, I was fighting hard. Youth and arts saw that they saw that I could teach art because I was doing it in the classroom. And they asked me if I wanted to come on as a teaching artist for youth and arts. And I said, yes. And so I started out covering for someone who was on maternity leave, then became a teaching artist, started writing curriculum really from the beginning and was asked if I would try to work with students with disabilities. In our county, there are 40 classrooms that are self-contained classrooms mm. for students with disabilities. And Youth and Arts was the only provider of art or the only consistent provider of arts to those classrooms. And I was mm. asked if I wanted to try that and was, I think, life-changing for me. That just rocked my world, my art world, my educational world. Every one of my first students was a girl who didn't communicate verbally and would only participate in anything if it would make noise. Mm-hmm. So I I was teaching visual art and I designed an entire residency around making art that would make noise. So in my spare time, I'm experimenting. What does it sound like when you, you know, paint on tinfoil and looking for squeaky toys that we could paint with and it was so much fun and she ended up participating in everything and it was amazing it was great yeah like she would sit down and work as opposed to you know just wandering around the classroom and then another this was this these were early intervention classrooms so these were very young children And another little boy, he cried every time I came into the classroom Mm -hmm. because I knew he, he knew I was going to make him 
do something new. And that was just overwhelming. And mm-hmm. so it, I, I, it, it was so upsetting to me that I told the teacher I probably couldn't come back. And she, she said, you have to, because I'm seeing differences. She was seeing the differences. So I kept coming back and I built an easel that would stand up on his wheelchair's tray. Mm-hmm. And I put some paint on a paintbrush and I put it in his hand and I asked him to make a, a mark and he just cried. He didn't move. Mm-hmm. So eventually I lifted his hand to the top of the canvas and just let it slide down on its own. I let go and it mm-hmm. made one beautiful strip of color. And that was it for the day. And I asked him to look at it and he did. And the next class, he could lift his hand a little bit. And after the third class, he was making his own marks and he was smiling. So it, it made me realize that for my own art, it doesn't have to be a masterpiece every time. Mm-hmm. You just have to appreciate your effort and smile. Mm-hmm. And so that really just helped me get get fired and going. Um, and then I've had so many little children who are in, who have speech and language delays, have their first words be, I want to paint. <laughs> oh, so beautiful. Yeah. Because oh. I would, I, I learned like as a mother, you know, about sharing and taking turns and all those kinds of things. So I would put on my mother's hat a little bit and put out too few materials and ask mm-hmm. little children to wait for things and ask them mm-hmm. to say please and to ask and to share. And so the art making became this social emotional learning activity mm-hmm. as well. You know, we're going to share, we're going to do all of these things. And that's when I realized even more the power of the arts to, to educate. And it doesn't have to be making a painting that says sharing is caring on the top or whatever, you know, it's, it's literally the act of sharing reinforces those skills. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that really meant a lot to me too. Yeah. There's so much amazing, I feel like amazing advice in all of that, but I wonder if you have any sort of specific like points of advice you would give to other teachers and especially, um, so I know you've been studying at Moore College mm-hmm. of Art and Design and um, specifically in their special populations program. But if there's any advice maybe from that experience and from your teaching yeah. experience that you'd want to share. Yes. So yes, I did. I got my master's in arts education from Moore College of Art and Design. And when I did the program, the focus was on special populations, and now they've they've redefined it as for adaptive arts, which mm-hmm. I think is really very fitting, and I really like that term. So it's a master of arts mm-hmm. in education in adaptive arts. And mm-hmm. I would say the most important thing that, so I'm doing a lot of teacher training now and a lot of coaching of new teaching artists. And number one, is you have to learn student names immediately, Mm -hmm. um, especially if you're only coming in for short-term residencies. Mm -hmm. And so I'm encouraging all of my art teachers to just give the classroom teacher a Sharpie and a stack of name tags and ask them Mm -hmm. to do it every time until you know the names. So that's that's the easiest one. And you see this warm glow on a student's face when you can say their name quickly. (laughs) And it's, it's, I don't know, it seems like a no brainer, but it really isn't. And then the other lesson, the other thing I've been teaching teachers is assume there's someone in your classroom, every classroom who needs more help. It Mm -hmm. can, so assume you have someone who has a speech and language delay is might be hard of hearing, might have a processing delay and design all of your work so that all of anyone could could access it with whatever materials and tools you give them. So it's how you show, how you demonstrate. It's making sure you're close enough that they can see. It's going slowly. We use a lot of visual cues. Like I, I 
designed, if anyone wants them, they can reach out. I designed this whole series of visual cue cards for artists, art teachers, Mm -hmm. and they show hand washing a desk. And then it says clean up in English and in Spanish. So we print them big and put them in the classrooms or in special day classrooms, we print them small and use them on the Velcro boards. Mm -hmm. And so just one more thing you can point to, to to remind. So we're teaching visually, auditorially and language. Yeah. And I think that that really helps where we are, the children who are most likely to to, to not understand are those who haven't been diagnosed yet with mm-hmm. any type of a disorder or English language learners who might just not get the nuances of, of you know, a visual arts class or a music yeah. or a dance class. Yeah. I love that advice to really assume like there's always yeah. someone who's going to need. And if there's not, that's okay. Like you're, you're making your lessons more accessible for everyone because everyone benefits from all of these practices. Right. And it's so, we, we learned a lot during COVID when we were, we made so many video lessons and we realized that art teachers talk a lot, me being one of them, (laughs) because we want to teach our process. You know, we want to, teach problem solving. We want to teach critical thinking. We want to teach all these things. And so we're, we're, we're breaking down our thought process with our words. And when we put those into videos, it was way too much. Mm -hmm. So we had to really refine how we used our words in videos. And I think that that makes us all better teachers because now that's where we realize it, it wasn't until we decided that we were making videos for students with, for an arts program for students with disabilities. And we wanted to look into sign language and we sent our video off to some schools and some programs focused on ASL. And they're like, you guys are talking too much. <laughs> they said, what you're saying doesn't match what your hands are doing. Mm-hmm. And that's confusing. So it really made us think about how we show what we're doing, as opposed to just assuming that people are going to break down these nuanced meanings behind what we do. It was really interesting. Yeah. And then it makes me think of this idea of teaching as almost kind of what you said earlier, just lecturing, like talking, talking, talking. But if I really want a student to learn problem solving, they're not going to learn it through me telling them about it for half an hour. They're going to learn it by solving some problems. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Which might lead to piles of pastel dust on your floor. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's. I think that we're in an interesting place at Youth and Arts because we work with visual arts and dance and music. So mm-hmm. we're also always looking at ways that where themes and concepts overlap and mm-hmm. how we can use, you know, we can learn dance moves or or movement to reinforce mm-hmm. visual arts skills or sounds or and rhythms to reinforce pattern. So we have a lot of fun with that also. Like how can you use the multiple disciplines to 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 introduce these same concepts? Yeah, so. that's beautiful. I feel like I got a little taste of that as well. I was a teaching artist for PS arts that mm-hmm. in LA, like they also work with all the different art forms. So getting to, you know, hang out with the theater and music and dance people at our PD sessions <laughs> was yeah. always very informative. That is, yeah. we have, we, one of the things I'm most proud of right now is this program that we call Value Ed, and it's virtual arts learning education. And it's so cool. We took our, what we learned from COVID, this video model mm-hmm. that are all pre-recorded and then I made a workbook that accompanies it. And mm. so with this kit, we've, we've, we started with fifth grade, which is an architecture program. And so with this kit, we gave it to a school 
And so the teachers, the classroom teachers taught it through the videos. The students had everything self-contained in a workbook. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if you were involved with trying to to share art supplies during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was terrible. Yeah. So this, the workbook takes care of all of that. Mm -hmm. And then that was the visual arts part of it. And then now we're working on a dance part of it too. So there are going to be dance videos that follow the same themes and concepts of Mm -hmm. architecture for the fifth graders. So they will embody architecture, not just through Mm -hmm. paper and pictures, but through their whole bodies. So the, 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 the dance part is starting in a couple of weeks. And I find that just really exciting too. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And such a way for them to explore the ideas in all these different forms of expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Hi, folks. Thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I'm jumping in to share one of the tools that I love. If you're thinking about starting your own podcast or video series, Zencaster is super helpful. Zencaster is an all-in-one podcast production suite that gives you studio quality audio and video without needing all the technical know-how. It records each guest locally and then uploads crystal clear audio and video right into the suite so you have high quality raw materials to work with. You can try it out for free at zen.ai slash teachingartistpod And if you do decide to sign up for a pro account, you get 30% off with this link and you'll be helping support this show. I love Zencaster because it records two separate tracks to make editing easier. And all I have to do is send a link to the guest. It can also handle multiple guests and there are options for audio only recording audio while viewing video, or recording both audio and video. I usually opt for just audio so I can record in my PJs. (laughs) Now the secret's out. The link to get 30% off pro and throw some support our way is zen.ai slash teachingartistpod. I'll throw that link in the show notes as well so you can try Zencaster. I would love to hear more about your art making. I know you talked a bit about like giant paintings and sort of experimenting with the materials, lots of layers. Do you still work in that way? Is that kind of your process now as well? So with COVID and working from home, so when I was at Moore, I really got into oil paintings and I was getting into oil paintings before I went there. And mm-hmm. that's when my scale got really big because I had a big studio there. I mean, that might've been the, yeah. well, don't tell them this, but that might've been the best <laughs> part of being there was this giant studio for the summer. So I did work really big and my, I worked only in oils, but I was really, really, again, interested in connecting my teaching to my art making. Mm -hmm. And a big part of what I do through my teaching is helping. We do a lot of portraiture and helping students understand emotions and expressions Mm -hmm. through portraiture. And so I took a whole bunch of portraits done, drawings done by kindergartners just little ones, but then I blew them up to 24 by 36, silk screened them, just the line drawing onto a canvas Mm -hmm. and basically designed my own coloring books to use because I didn't want to worry about the content. I just wanted Mm -hmm. to worry about the color mixing and Mm -hmm. putting together this rich lush thing. And it was so much fun. I just it was just big, gooey, bright, you know, mm. again, exploring this a medium that I didn't have much experience with, especially not on a big scale. So that's that was what I was doing until COVID hit. And with an at-home studio, I couldn't do the oils anymore. So I went back to acrylics, but still kept the gooeyness 
And I still love to work on paper more than anything else. So I've still held on to the paper part of what I do. One, one of the questions you, you had was around artist block, writer's block. Yeah. And when my studio was just my studio and not my office and my studio, I would have corner that was basically just my writer's block corner. And Mm -hmm. I always had one painting going that I could do anything on. And that just freed me up. And even if the, even if the block would last for a week or two, that was okay because I was still doing something. And one of my favorite paintings ever is called Experimental Lemon because it started out just random, ended up with a lemon on it. And then I cut letters out of the middle of it, you know? So now when my office and my studio are in the same place, I don't have that same luxury of space. So Mm -hmm. When I have the block, I've been switching to more of my, I guess you'd call them my just traditional arts, which I learned from my mother and my grandmother. So Mm. I've been doing a lot of beading, making little badges. And I have this, it's a, a worksheet I made for kids, for students on designing your own superpower symbol. And I ask grownups to fill it out. And then I design their own superpower symbol based on the words they use to describe themselves and the little pictures they choose. I've loved, loved, loved doing that. And I find it very meditative. I didn't always handle COVID the the best. And so Mm -hmm. I needed to find something that was really, really meditative and calming for me. Right before schools closed because of COVID, one of my students died. One of my students with some pretty extreme disabilities. And Mm -hmm. back then they would not say it was COVID, but it was pneumonia-like symptoms. So that kind of set me on a downward spiral when schools closed. So that's why I really needed something meditative. So I've been doing that. And then I've also been doing some fiber arts, designing quilts where I'm basically sewing the pictures on by hand and designing them myself. And again, super meditative and reusing old cashmere sweaters, actually. And so I've been doing that as well. And then, you know, keeping small journals and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, like, there's a thread, I see a little thread of sort of sourcing content from other people. Like, I love that idea of screen printing the the images to give yourself sort of this giant coloring book. Yeah. <laughs> and then even, you know, the superhero badges that, you know, someone else can have this idea and then you can make it happen in this really beautiful meditative way. Yeah. It's, I feel like really good, you know, a good piece of advice for, you know, if somebody's experiencing that block to to have ongoing projects like that where you can kind of source your content from other people. Yeah. Yeah. Take the pressure off of you. Yeah. 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 And even like you said, that little corner where, you know, if there, if you do have space, having that corner of like, this is sort of anything goes, there's no, no mistakes here. You just, you know, do something, keep your practice going by doing something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Mm. And then do you, with your artwork alongside teaching, are you, have you been, you know, showing your work, selling your work? I know you have that background also in art history and working as an appraiser. Do you feel like that comes in? Like, is that helpful as an artist in any way? The appraiser piece, I would say the only reason it's helpful is because I've looked at so many images. Mm -hmm. So I think from like, I really look closely at images probably because of that that background i'm really looking at brush strokes i'm really looking at the kind of paper but otherwise it it doesn't really play a part in in what i do and uh, what was the other question oh, oh whether, selling yeah whether you show and sell your work right i have shown in the past and i have sold my work in the past and i've also done it as a fundraiser like I was selling to raise money for Africa for a long time. I have not really tried that hard to sell in the last few years because the the educational piece has has taken center stage. And mm-hmm. honestly, I'm a terrible salesperson. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Mm-hmm. That was always my least part, least favorite part of everything. So um, 
I know I'm, I'm not very good at selling my stuff. I'm very good at giving it away though. <laughs> <laughs> I would sell it if someone that. said they wanted to buy it, but yeah. Yeah. I find that really, really hard too. I feel like so many artists and especially maybe there's like this special group of art educators that the whole sales thing just feels so very foreign. Right. It's, it's hard to wrap my head around. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. 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 So I always ask because I'm like, maybe somebody else has, <laughs> somebody else is good at this and can give me tips. <laughs> I know. And I really, I, I, I was at a dinner party a while ago and we were talking about Amazon and I made a joke about not buying stuff through Amazon and people thought I was lying because everyone shops at Amazon. But I really believe that I say that as a preface to I'm not really good at social media either. And I'm not sure it's the best thing for our society. So when I do get on, I tend to spiral and, you know, like you just go down the rabbit hole. So I'm not very good at even keeping up on my own work and all that kind of stuff to, to mm -hmm. sell it that way either. So Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've found a lot of like it, the stress gets removed a bit when I just let go of some of that. Mm -hmm. Like lately, I have not been trying, you know, there's this sort of pressure, like you have to post something every day. Yeah. And I've just been like, nope, I'm going to post whenever I can get to it. Right. <laughs> and right. that takes so much pressure off. Yeah. To just kind of let go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then kind of starting to wrap up, I like this really broad question that I, I always want to ask everyone. So I have a couple of like, everybody gets these questions. What are you curious about? <laughs> I love <laughs> that question. question. <laughs> it's funny. I answered that question. What are, what am I curious about? I answered that question, I think two weeks ago and it was mushrooms two weeks ago mm. <laughs> because it was raining and I love to work, walk in the forest. And I love to be watching the ground and it absolutely fascinates me how many different mushrooms pop up in the strangest places and how you can almost trace their root underground. Mm. I just, I'm fascinated by that. But now it's been bright and sunny for a while. So I might have to go back to birds because I'm also, I guess I'm fascinated by things I, I see or watch. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And, and how that, you know, the answer to that question is probably always changing. Yeah. 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 It's and like, it's what like, is your favorite color? Yeah. You know, you I have can't. to say, what is your favorite color today? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know my daughter has sort of like assigned us favorite colors. <laughs> so <laughs> my official favorite color is yellow, but oh. yeah, it changes often. <laughs> it's funny. I was in a classroom a couple weeks ago and a, a student asked me, what's your favorite color? And that day I looked out the window and the, the light was shining through the leaves of a tree. And I mm -hmm. said, that color green when the light is shining through the leaves. And oh. he looked at it and he is like, it was so, it was so cute because he, he realized, oh my gosh, it's not just green. You know, there's not just one green. It's that green yeah. today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that realization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was a uh, I'm not going to remember. Maybe I will try to find it and link to it. But there was a lesson I saw many years ago that was really inspiring where and it was so simple. It was like, t have your kids look at plants, like go outside or bring a plant into the classroom, draw the plants, but then, you know, paint them and ask what color, like what green is that? Are the leaves the same color as the stem? Is this part of the leaf the same color as that part of the leaf? Yeah. And just asking these like these questions and getting them to have that realization. That's great. Yeah. yeah. That's really great. Yeah. Make this green, not any green. <laughs> right. Like how would you mix that if you're mixing paint? How would right. you make that color? And what about the other green? Like what would you have to change to make the other green? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I gotta uh, think about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was probably over 10 years ago that I saw that. And I'm like, it's just stuck with me. That's such a great line of questioning. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Okay. Another just kind of fun question for you. What is uh -huh. your favorite food? Oh, well, okay. Today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But today that's easy because I had a craving for, okay, I'm from Maine and <laughs> 
my family's been there for many, 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 many generations. And I had a craving for baked beans. And so mm. I got to pull out my great grandmother's bean pot and make mm. baked beans in her pot from her recipe. And so right now that's mm. my favorite food. Beautiful. Yeah. And that like it, you know, brings up these images of like going back so many generations to Yeah. And the Beautiful. smell of her kitchen when she made her baked mm. beans. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Last couple things. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you online? I the best place the best place is probably Instagram, even though I said I don't use it very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I do check at S Joyal Art. Cool. And then a lot of the stuff that we post on youthandarts.org is mm-hmm. by me and you can you can find me there also. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, And I will link to all of that as well. And then is there any one you would want to sort of give a shout out to or thank? That would be really hard to narrow that down to one person. But I would have to say probably my husband, Peter, for accepting me and putting up with an artist, living with an artist, (laughs) when he's very clear about the fact that he doesn't understand my brain. (laughs) (laughs) But he understands my need to do what I do. So, yes, having unconditional support for 33 years is is definitely worth a shout out. Yeah, that's huge. We all have that. Yeah. Actually, you know what? One and I would I would another thing from your questions here, you asked Mm -hmm. about family. And I would have to say I would give a shout out to my parents because Mm -hmm. in this time of COVID and after COVID, I realize just how kind they are. And we never really talked about that as a family. Like no one ever Mm -hmm. called that out because they're also from Maine. People from Maine don't talk about themselves. But I would have to say that they instilled in me such a sense of kindness without ever Mm -hmm. using those words. I would have to say that's that's also shaped my life. That Mm. that's the way one should live, I think. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much, Suzanne. This was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it was wonderful. And yeah, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.